everybody. Welcome to the November 11th, 2016 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. And let me give a quick shout-out to all of our veterans out there on a special Veterans Day. Thank you very much for your service to this great country. May you live in interesting times. That famous Chinese curse seems to definitely be our lot right now. Let's get one word or phrase that is your reaction to election night. Patty Cahoon from Westward, you're first up. Sadly, it's the word I used to describe this year back in January, which is Trumptious. <laughs> that was a fantastic invention then and, and still holds up. Mike Krauss, the Independence Institute, your one word or phrase to describe election night. Uh, a repudiation of the democratic political class in this country. That's a longer phrase. I think Dave Cope will be proud that that was uh, uh, your entry there. Eric Sonnen, political analyst. My one word would be shock. And, there's the, the, and if I can go on for one sentence, that shock remains. I felt early Wednesday morning walking through downtown to give a speech. You're seeing all these faces and you didn't know if they were Trump voters or anti-Trump voters, but everyone seemed to be in shock. Mm -hmm. Penn Tate, attorney at QTech Rock, longtime state lawmaker, shared election night with us so we get to see it live in person. Your one word or phrase. Dangerous, and I'll explain it as we talk about some of the other things. All right, let's get to it. Donald Trump pulled off an historic upset this week and in turn set the polling industry on its ear. While his electoral college win included many battleground swing states, Colorado gave Hillary the nod and became a rare blue island on a very red map. Patty Calhoun, as you look at this, um, it, it, there's been all kinds of different analysis nationwide, you know, how this, but at the end of the day, I look at the, all the different swing states, and they're very different. To win Florida and North Carolina, but that also Michigan and Wisconsin are different strategies. Yeah, those are totally different voters in those uh, uh, areas. What do you think spoke to voters as diverse in uh, Florida and Wisconsin? Well, what we're discovering is what we talked about for a long time is that we both we had two flawed candidates in different ways, and in some states, it was a vote against Hillary Clinton. I don't think it was a vote against Hillary Clinton as a woman, but as the continuing dynasty, the long-term industry. Uh, political insider. There was definitely a vote against her in some of those, and it would have been nice if they just stayed home and not voted for Trump, but then there were two, truly the people with Trump who wanted a big change, and I think that's a lot of the reality-watching TV people. If you saw Michael Moore talking about it, and no one was more upset that my, that, uh, but less surprised possibly, than Michael Moore who says, I live in Flint, I watch reality shows. These people think he's a hero because he's a reality TV star. So I woke up Wednesday morning and thought, oh, my God, what a dream that was. And then I realized, no, no, we are in our long national nightmare. I felt a little better when I actually heard Trump's acceptance speech, which seemed to uh, realize he realized that they actually America is a big country with a big, diverse population, and he promised to be the president for everyone. We'll believe it when we see it. Uh, Hillary gave the best speech, I thought, of her life, her um, concession speech, which was unbelievably gracious, giving hope to the little girls out there that uh, someday there would be a female president. And then 
you seem to have a good kumbaya between Obama and Trump, and then immediately Trump goes and starts tweeting about protesters are being egged on by the media, as though the media can, has gotten off the floor from its hangover from Tuesday night. <laughs> Mike, um, <clears throat> for me, I guess my question is, does this unify the Republican Party, or does it redefine the Republican Party? I, I have a hard time seeing this unifying the Republican Party. In fact, I think uh, what you'll probably see is a, a redefining of the party. And I, I don't necessarily buy into the notion that Trump has remade the Republican Party into his own image. In fact, right. there was a lot of Republicans who were uh, adamantly opposed to him and remained opposed to him all the way up until today, as a matter of fact. Uh, Nebraska Senator Ben Sass being one of the best examples. And so what I think you'll see is a uh, probably a certainly a lot of soul-searching going on, but I also think that you'll see uh, Republicans, uh, depending on what uh, kind of policy proposals Donald Trump actually puts forward, I think you'll see Republicans willing to push back against him and to, and to temper him. Uh, and moving forward, uh, um, although I will, I will say that I think that if anyone has to do some soul-searching, it's probably the Democrats rather than the Republicans, mm -hmm. uh, because they uh, managed to uh, lose to Donald Trump. That's a good point. It's a, you, you see the unfavorables, and you found, as a party, found a way to lose it. That's a good point. Um, Eric, can a, a win like this that you described, you know, you know, shocked as a reaction on election night, can this reset, at least uh, maybe temporarily, what we consider Republican platform, Democratic platform? Yes. When you consider Donald Trump didn't have to defeat, he's the first president not to have to defeat one party, he had to defeat two parties. He had to first defeat the Republican Party before he could defeat the Democrats. He is not an ideological figure. We'll see if he becomes an ideological figure, if there's any consistency uh, to what he's doing. Uh, I mean, I've been doing 30-minute speeches on this analysis, and now I'll try to get some thoughts into 90 seconds here. But, um, you know, Patty talks about two awful candidates. I'd go stronger. I'd call them deplorable. This was a deplorable campaign between two deplorable in very different way very different ways candidates. Somebody had to win it. Somebody had to lose it. Hillary Clinton, it strikes me, she was had two lead weights attached to her ankles. She would have been able to survive either one of those lead weights, but not the combination. The two being that she was the consummate establishment insider candidate in the ultimate outsider year, and all the ethical impropriety, scandals, whatever you want to call them attached to her. You could survive either one of those. The combination of the two was just too much. What this election told me is that when this country wants to make a statement, that statement will not be denied. We've seen that a few times past and not that long distant political memory. This country wanted to make a statement. It has been a long time since as 9 o'clock became 10 o'clock, became 11 o'clock, eyes were on those upper Midwest states. It had been 1984 since a Republican carried Wisconsin, 88 in Michigan and Pennsylvania. Yet those people wanted to be heard, and people similar, similar demographics around the country. It is one thing they long since got used to being overlooked. What they didn't get used to was being looked down upon. And I think it was finally a revulsion at being looked down upon with smugness and condescension by too many people on the coast and a broken political establishment that they were determined to upset that apple cart. Penn, the Republican Party has its own fair share of soul-searching here, even, even though it's in power. But we had to talk about the old other party that I think Mike brought up. Democrats found a way to lose to Donald Trump, and 
they uh, they weren't going to, uh, you know, they, they already had lost the Senate and the House, but they didn't make any strides there. So they, they look at being in the minority in all three of the major uh, parts of government. What do you think is first up on a national level for the Democratic Party? You, uh, many things, and, and let me explain what I said before, why I think we are in dangerous times now. And I agree with much of what's been said around the table. Um, beginning election night, and since then I have watched CNN, CNBC, Fox. I've listened to Rush Limbaugh, NPR. I've tried to cover the entire spectrum to hear what's going on. And, and what I think has happened is voters didn't vote for Trump so much as vote for an idea. They're just angry. Uh, what struck me were a number of comments I heard. I heard a woman on NPR say, I am a white, college-educated woman who lives in suburban Milwaukee, and I voted for Donald Trump because I feel ignored. Um, and I've never voted for a Republican before. I just feel ignored. Then I heard a fellow on um, Rush Limbaugh saying, I'm a white, conservative Republican. I don't think Donald Trump is a Republican, and I hope he's not as bigoted as he sounded all election, but I voted for him just hoping for the best, and I hope he's not a crazy bigot, but I just want stuff to be different. I don't think he's a Republican. I just want stuff to be different. Mm -hmm. So the Republicans are in a dangerous area because they don't know what they have. Then I hear Newt Gingrich, which was amazing, saying Donald Trump's not going to build a wall. Uh, we're not going to let him, and it was just the right shtick to say during a campaign to get you elected. So now you've got the people around him saying, well, yeah, we kind of lied to get elected, but trust us, things are going to be okay. So if you've lied to get elected, are you telling the truth saying things are going to be okay? We're in dangerous times. The Republican Party doesn't know what it has. Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell are trying to cut deals and get to an understanding, but they have in a president-elect someone who doesn't necessarily buy into their platform because he didn't run on a platform. He ran on a personality. The Democratic Party needs to do some soul-searching because whether you look at Florida or Michigan or Wisconsin or Ohio, they lost this election because for some reason or another, white, working-class voters who historically have voted Democratic said, no, we're going to go with this guy. And even though, even now, 42% of the people in this country are polled as saying we're scared of what he's going to do, You've got people who are voting for someone as president who said, I'm terrified and frightened about what he may do, but I just wanted something different. Mm -hmm. And they can't define what that is, but they just took a leap of faith. Um, so it's going to be interesting. Um, in the protest, I think we're going to continue for a while, and we'll see how everybody responds to that. But I don't think we know what to expect. And even when his cabinet appointments start rolling out, I'm not certain how much that tells you. Agree. Colorado's congressional incumbents cruised to re-election in Colorado on Tuesday. However, the final tally in the U.S. Senate race and the six congressional races were fairly surprising. The Senate race was only decided by three points, while Kaufman won what many thought would be a closer race by eight points. Uh, Mike, I know um, I was on an election night panel with uh, our friend Penn and Dick Wadhams, and I think if you would have walked in at 659 and said, I'll make you a bet that um, Daryl Glenn's going to be closer to Michael Bennett than Morgan Carroll will be to um, uh, Mike Kaufman, somebody would have made a lot of money, at least for me, on that bet. Um, I, I was stunned by that. What was your reaction? It's interesting. If you take, take Daryl Glenn's 45%, uh, and then you take Lily Williams, the Libertarian candidate's 3.5%, which, by the way, significant percentage for a Libertarian U.S. Senate candidate, uh, you're actually neck and neck with Michael Bennett. 
Uh, and uh, so what you see is that uh, Michael Bennett was highly beatable uh, this year, uh, and that uh, despite the fact that Daryl Glenn still lost by three or four points, you still see that, and it's not a perfect Comparison simply because libertarian candidates often draw from disaffected Democrats as well, but it does show that at least the center right in Colorado was out there voting uh, like the Democrats were. And so it was neck and neck in terms of the, the left versus the right. Uh, so a highly beatable year for the accidental senator, Michael Bennett, uh, which frankly, still the luckiest man in Washington, D.C. Yeah, there's going to be a, a book written at some point in luckiest son of a gun <laughs> politics that should certainly be the, involved in the titling. Uh, Eric, I, I guess was um, my question to you would be is, does this win give Kaufman Perlmutter status? And what I mean by that is a little inside baseball here is, while Ed Perlmutter represents a very balanced bipartisan district, Republicans don't run a real candidate against them, and my apologies to Mr. Itterberg and Mr. Anthonopoulos, but um, they don't consider a competitive race anymore. Did Kaufman get that status, or will he continue to see top-notch uh, um, competitors like he has seen Andrew Romanoff and Morgan Carroll? Yes, in a word, yes, he got that status. Other significant people might emerge to run against him, but they won't be funded. The Democrats are not going to continue to invest major resources in that race. With one asterisk, and it was mentioned around this table by somebody else previously, and that's redistricting. That's, that is Mike Kaufman's concern, is what happens after the next census, not anything before now and then. There had been a narrative developing in this state that we were on this inexorable march from red to purple and then to blue. I think what the other night told us in conjunction with 2014 is, no, we're not, we're not a blue state and probably not headed that way anytime soon. We are a confirmed purple state. There was more of a conservative Republican flavor to election night than anyone anticipated coming. In terms of the Senate race, it once again underscored the point we have often talked about, candidate selection matters. If the Republicans had a real candidate with viability beyond a narrow base, instead of going the Dan Mays route, and that's probably unfair to Daryl Glenn. He, he was a man of more substance than Dan Mays. But instead of going with a token candidate, who knows what could have happened. What the, what the Daryl Glenn vote showed is that is the absolute Republican base. That is what any Republican is going to get. And all you needed was a candidate who could build four points on top of that. Uh, Lastly, I mean, turning this to future tense in terms of what this means for Colorado, I think the biggest story that hasn't gotten a lot of discussion is John Hickenlooper's not getting on an airplane. John Hickenlooper is not headed to Washington. I don't think he's going to get that phone call from Donald Trump. Just making a wild guess there. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it scrambles a whole lot of expectations. I don't think he was assured of a job under Hillary Clinton, but he certainly was angling for one. Mm -hmm. John Hickenlooper, in all likelihood, now serves out his term, freezes Donald Lynn out. And 2018 becomes an off-year election, not for Democrats, with Democrats in power. becomes an off-year election with Republicans in power. And every opportunity for Democrats to continue what has been a 44-year, 36 out of the last 44 years, they've held the governor's office. If you're looking at 2018, you can probably bet that's going to continue. I think uh, it also cemented Ken Salazar for governor. Uh, that campaign can probably start rolling out signs at this point. Uh, Penn, um, how did... Uh, Glenn get so close to Bennett. I mean, we were, I, I'll admit it, I was the first person to talk around this table thinking that uh, Eric brought up, we shouldn't even talk about this race anymore. The winner of the Republican primary in June was Michael Bennett. It was over. He was significantly close. 
You know, I think a lot of it is what Mike has to say. I, I, I think Michael was not the strongest of candidates. I think he was beatable. I think he went into this cycle knowing he was beatable. But Eric is also right. The Republican Party shot itself in the foot by nominating um, Daryl Glenn. Um, I can think of Jack Graham and a few other people who probably on a good day, given the, this tally, might have beaten Michael. But something else is going on in Colorado. Not only are we an anomaly because we were a blue state in this election wave, but you and I saw it election night. As we watched returns, um, Hillary Clinton won Colorado, but the key reason she won it is in some of those counties where, you know, you had Mike Kaufman and others running, Donald Trump won, but in a lot of them, he never broke 60%. And those are the Douglas places. County, uh, Douglas County, yeah. El Paso County, Weld County, Arapahoe County, Jefferson County. He didn't do well. And so what it tells me is the reason we're a purple state is voters made a conscious decision. They voted for Hillary Clinton at the top of the ballot. And when they got down ballot and once they got beyond um, Bennett and Glenn, and I think that's part of what helped Glenn. They were very precise in terms of how they voted for their Congress people and their state senators and their state representatives because the balance of power hasn't changed in the legislature. Republicans control the Senate, Democrats still control the House, and all of the incumbent um, Congress people got reelected. Um, and so I think voters were very intentional. And to Eric's point, candidates matter. And I also think issues matter. Mm. Patty, uh, I guess what, uh, part of the thing that mystified me was you look at uh, the day before Election Day, you have a sitting president with a high 50s approval rating. He's not running for re-election. It's not him, but his party's on the ticket. And you have congressional approval ratings right under communism. Colorado re-elects its entire congressional campaign in what's supposed to be this change that no incumbent even had to sweat through it. Um, Am I the only one mystified to that? Well, considering we had such an anti-insider or anti-incumbent wave nationally, it was a little surprising. But I have to say, when you look at the Bennett and um, Gerald Glenn ratio, it's almost exactly as it was Hillary and Trump in Colorado. And I think what we're looking at is still there's an anti-insider, anti-incumbent for all we know, if Daryl Glenn had run for president, he would have won. I mean, he might make a better president than Donald Trump. Uh, so I think he just benefited from that, you know, that he got as high as he did was just the anti-incumbent, anti-insider vote. But at least enough people in Colorado had sense to elect a senator who's done a pretty good job for the state. And the fact that they were able to look at Mike Kaufman, who has done a pretty good job for this state, too, and say, we're going to go for him. We're not going to go for Morgan Carroll, despite all the last-second ads. That wasn't a big surprise. In fact, that one I think I did predict that I thought people would be able to split the ticket. Yeah. They would look at the people they liked who were incumbents who'd done a good job. You called it. Our, uh, our post game from last week included a lot of predictions, and there were a lot of right ones. There were some wrong ones, but there were a lot of right ones. You should check that out. Colorado voters were in much more of a yes mood than previously assumed regarding amendments and propositions. Propositions 106, 107, and 108 all won, in addition to amendments 70 and 71. In fact, only Colorado Care and the increased cigarette tax were the only big campaign losers. Um, Eric, this shocked me. I really thought this was going to be a no year. Um, Anti-establishment means usually means no on amendments. I can't remember, at least in recent history, when amendments and propositions had such a great night. Could you? Not in a while. I mean, it's Colorado's one of these states, and now 71 will change that, but Colorado's been one of these states where it's easy to get to the starting line with these ballot measures, but hard to get to the finish line because voters 
sort them out and discern, and it's much easier to get no votes than yes votes, as, as we all know. I do think 107 and 108 in particular were anti-establishment votes. That was, a, let's shake up the apple cart, let's let independents into the game. Sorry about that, Penn. Uh, <laughs> let's, uh, you know, shake up the apple cart as I indicated. 71 was the one that somewhat surprised me, and I'd become outspoken on that in terms of that I thought it was absolutely the right intent, but maybe the wrong prescription. But that one was the ultimate establishment campaign, both in terms of what it was about, limiting voters' access to the ballot, and in terms of who was backing it and who was funding it. And yet it prevailed and prevailed handily, I don't know, 56, 57 percent, something like that. So if, 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 if anything surprised me, not that it passed, but that it passed so easily, that might have been a surprise. Personally, very happy to see 106, the medical aid and dying measure passed. That became important to me um, just as a, a, a personal issue. So I was pleased with that and, uh, and the margin on Colorado Care. I know the headline the day after that they're coming back. You're coming back from 80-20. What are you going to do? Rewrite it a little bit and get 77-23? Yeah, that's progress. <laughs> yeah, into that. Ben, um, how long do you think it'll take uh, for Colorado voters to feel the effect of 71? Because that's a little inside baseball. It's amendments and signatures, all that kind of stuff. It seems to me it's going to take a while. No, nope, next election cycle. Um, I think there are some there are some initiatives and, and ideas that people were thinking of, and they look at 71 and they're saying, nope, we can't get it done now. We don't have the horses. We don't have the money. We don't have the people. We don't have the network. We can't float this amendment out. We can't get it approved in 30, you know, all, all the counties in the state, so let's give her up. And if it's a statute, um, it can be overturned or um, edited in the state legislature. That's right. That's right. Um, you know, and I think that all of these ballot issues were actually sort of anti-establishment votes. I think 106, that's how I read that. 107, 108 clearly were anti-establishment. 70 was interesting because I think it tapped into what I was hearing nationally from some of these people mm -hmm. who went with Trump. It's like, we've been ignored, we've been getting cheated in the short end of the stick financially, economically, you know, other places are recovering, and, and it, I, I can't get over the juxtaposition of voting for a multi-bajillionaire when you're complaining about, you know, wanting to raise the minimum wage to 12 bucks an hour. Um, but that's what happened. And so I think what you had was a number of working folks who said, you know, a whole bunch of people have gotten their slice of the pie. We haven't. Doggone it. We're putting this in the Constitution. We're raising the minimum wage because we, we deserve an even shot here. And so I think that was even anti-establishment, anti-incumbent uh, in sentiment. Um, what's interesting is I think they're still counting the votes on the whole marijuana lounge thing in Denver. That's going to be an interesting um, thing to see how that shakes out also. That's true. Uh, Patty, does John Elway return after this first successful foray into politics? Um, and smoke some pot and marijuana lounges. We'll see. You know what was interesting to me, and I was wrong on 71, which was one he was touting, because I thought there would be enough rebellion from voters about being told what they should be doing that they would want to preserve their right to change the Constitution as much as they did. So I was wrong there, but you could see where the rebellion came in 107, 108, and it was very specifically, I think, in response to the presidential candidates we had. They want changes at any level they can to ensure that maybe next time they have some presidential candidates they can really get behind. Mike, wrap it up for us. 
Well, uh, obviously you see the Coloradans are more than willing to split the ticket when it comes to these ballots because it was all over the place. Um, Amendment 71 didn't just make it more difficult for citizens to amend the Constitution. It just became nigh impossible uh, for anyone unless you're willing to spend several million dollars on your signature gathering. What people didn't, might, a lot of people who voted for this might not realize is that one Senate district out of 35 can now kill something that the other 34 might want to get vote, vote on. So uh, basically 55% of Coloradans just denied themselves the ability to vote on things, uh, which is hugely ironic. Uh, although when you got five, six million dollars in John Elway on your side, it's not hard to do things. Uh, the most gratifying part of, uh, of, the, of that night was uh, Amendment 72. Which, and I was around for Amendment 35, and you worked on Amendment 35, and if, if they would have gone for a modest tax increase that had meaningful things attached to the money, I bet it would have passed, but they got greedy, they got stupid, and they took too big a bite at the apple, and uh, they got shot down. It's nice to see tax increases get shot down. Thank you, Taxpayers' Bill of Rights. <laughs> it's on the end of the show. This is our favorite part of the disgrace of the week, uh, but we're running out of time, so let's do it rather quickly. You know, it is fine for Donald Trump to not like the media, but let us hope he peels back on all that hate-filled rhetoric and that it was all just a campaign posture because we do not want a racist, misogynist president of the United States. Left-wing billionaire funder George Soros, who dumped over a million dollars on a awful uh, smear campaign against an honorable man, Pete Weir, in the 1st Judicial District. Jeffco voters did not buy off on it, re-elected Pete 53 percent. Eric. I don't know if I call this a disgrace, but when you look at the Democrats trying to rebuild, now finally out from under that Clinton shadow, which has prevented so much upward mobility, if Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are the answer, I'm not sure what the question is. You need a new generation. It is time to pass the torch, particularly on the House side. Penn. I, I think it's fine to be upset with the results. I think it's fine to express your disapproval, but it's not fine to loot and, and pillage and... Um, commit violence, um, that's wrong, and that needs to stop. Say something nice about somebody? Patty? How about Denver's protesters who, they stop traffic on I-25, but hey, we can do that without a protest. They <laughs> behaved themselves, and the Denver Police Department also acted very well. Den Denver can hold its head up high with that and electing Hillary, and voting for Hillary. The many thousands and thousands of veterans who went to work today, as usual, so many tens and tens of thousands of people who did not serve could take a paid holiday off. Here, here. Eric. I was going to say Barack Obama for the graciousness of what he's handled this, but I was doing a panel discussion this morning too early. There was in the audience and during the Q&A session a young dreamer, someone here illegally, stood up, could barely get the words out of her mouth, but she rose in bravery and courage to ask a question about what was going to happen to her. There are individual lives on the line here, and you don't take it out on the kids. Penn. My, a similar circumstance to Eric, I had someone in my office come to me, shut the door and ask a question and said, are we going to be okay? Um, and I, I just, I'm struck by how much people care about where we are and where we're headed. Uh -huh. That's all the time we had tonight. Thanks for tuning in. You can catch CIO on, iTunes, on our iTunes podcast, our Twitter feed, and on Facebook. Be sure to check us out. And, of course, our CIO postgame segment every week. For everyone here at Colorado Public Television, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thanks for watching. Happy Veterans Day.